This episode has been brought to you in part by Canderell and Kingset Capital. Coming soon, affordable luxury condominium living at 908 St. Clair West. Nestled into a vibrant, one-of-a-kind neighborhood, 908 St. Clair West is a modern treasure, offering a sophisticated lifestyle inspired by St. Clair Village and prestigious Forest Hill. Register today at 908stclairwest.com. This is Bonjour Chai, the Ukraine is not weak edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, war between Russia and Ukraine. Is this bad for the Jews? Plus, we're continuing to experiment with the uh, Word of Wisdom of the Week, and uh, we have a bit of a new format change, so stay tuned for that. Alana, David, how's your week been? I... I got nothing. It was just me shrugging up in the air. You know what? I thought of I thought of you the other day because I I went to Niagara on the Lake for Family Day, which I is a thing the that they have here. Did you? Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to this hat store and I tried on a Stetson. And I thought of you. <laughs> but did you pronounce it correctly? I was like, I correctly? know what that is now. Stetson, is that right? I, Avi, you're our Stetson expert right now. So <laughs> did. It, it is pronounced. I also race. bought myself a really cool hat. Not a Stetson, though. And it's like tucked away in a hat box right now. So I'm not going to pull it out. But it, it's really nice. What did you think of uh, Niagara on the Lake? It was really cute. I really love those like little theater towns. Like it reminded me a lot of Stratford. Um, I'd, I'd never been before to Niagara on the Lake. And the lake was really nice. The little shops, the houses. It was very idyllic. But there was no theater going on at the time right now. No, I know, but like you, you see all the theaters, and like my one of my friends who came with us was in the Shaw Festival a bunch of years ago, so he pointed out all the spots, and this is the bar where we did this, and this is the thing, and yeah. Do you have Family Day in Calgary, David? We do, we absolutely do. So uh, everyone took it off. It was nice and relaxing, and um, I didn't go into work, so that was great. Sorry, Avi. I know you don't get fam- Family Day. There is there is no Family Day in uh, Quebec. Um, well, we get, you know, there's no other families perks. in Quebec. There's no families in Quebec. It's true. Um, the kids have been all we off all week, actually. So it's been family week. Um, this has been the uh, kids learn to ski week. So we've been going up and down and uh, getting them ski lessons and getting it's There's this magical moment when you see a kid click like in terms of skiing and they're like, oh, I get what I'm supposed to be doing. And this is working. And like, this light up in their face it's it's a beautiful moment um so that's been the week it's been skiing i never um, learned how to ski and people give me weird looks all the time because i'm from montreal and they think that's bad but i blame my parents uh i went cross-country skiing a few times but they never taught me how to downhill ski but i never have had a broken bone in my body so at least there's that i've had many broken bones in my body because because of skiing a lot of crying because of skiing. So less broken bones, more broken hearts. Oh, I was God. a little Anglo in the group and everyone was Francophone and no one spoke English. And I was like eight or nine years old. And I would remember just flying down the, the hill at Mont- Montevilla and uh, crying because I had no friends. I used to go tubing down Avila. Yeah, Avila is the one that we've been going to because it's really close. And the kids like that my name is in the like name of the like, ski hill. Yeah. 
yeah. Um, so that's been fun. It's uh, I had a friend who was like, I was telling him, oh, yeah, we're going skiing next week with the kids. We're teaching them lessons. He's like, you know, I don't understand that. That's like basically like, hey, kids, let's learn to drive drunk or here yeah. is drugs. Like, what's the idea behind like, hey, let's put <laughs> our kids on skis and get them going so fast down a hill as like this is the pastime of, you know, Montrealers and other Canadians and stuff. Uh, yeah. I Did don't you know. see the clip of the this father who put a little microphone on his child as they were learning to ski? It's It's been blowing up all over social media and he's just he's like talking to himself this little four-year-old or five-year-old he's like down i go the hill oops i fell down that's okay it's adorable (laughs) is the kid wearing an ncsy sweatshirt always no he's wearing a he's wearing a dinosaur um full onesie oh awesome that's so cute it's great um my highlight of the week actually has been uh having a meeting with moisha house maple leaf gardens that was um, your we highlight? We do a program together. Wow, no, so no, it's not the highlight. But it was a highlight of the week. I don't know how to feel. Um, You're like, it's a highlight. It's not the highlight. But yes, we, we had a, a highlight. We had a, we had a good chat the other day. It, it's not even Purim. We're thinking ahead to Passover. Uh, I'm going to be doing a Passover boot camp for uh, Moisha House Maple Leaf Gardens and possibly other Moisha Houses. Um, there'll be Zoom information. Alana will send it out. You're the first people to hear about this. Um, I will teach people in an hour and a half uh, how to prepare for Passover, how to lead a Seder, um, and anything and everything related to that. So that should be fun. Yeah. And I got to meet your daughter for like a few minutes. That was cute. That is true. She is quite the person. Um, speaking of Purim, though, uh, we want to hear from you, right? We're talking about um, Purim coming up in a few weeks. I was like sitting there wondering, is there a Canadian Jewish joke? Are there Canadian Jewish jokes? Um, if you think that you have one, um, we'd love to hear it. Um, we'd love to think about what Canadian Jewish humor is specifically. Um, you can either email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca with your Canadian Jewish joke, um, or better yet, record yourself uh, telling it. Like use the voice app, um, on the voice recording app on your phone and just email it to us. Um, and maybe we'll put it in our special porn episode. So uh, get your Canadian Jewish jokes out there and uh, send them to us. We want to hear them. Do you have a Canadian Jewish joke, David? I don't have a Canadian Jewish joke, but I do have a Russian-Ukrainian Jewish joke if i may tell well apparently those are two very separate things so pick a lane here <laughs> well they, they sort of come to coalesce together i would say now i do want to state that this is not my joke i did not create it i found it on the internet i'm scared but go for it so two jews are standing on a street in kiev speaking in yiddish a third jew comes up and says guys why are you speaking in yiddish to which one of the yiddish speaking men replies you know I'm scared to speak in Russian because if I do, Putin will show up and try to liberate us. But, um, yeah. I'm just laughing at your reaction, Avi. <laughs> Thank you. Send us your jokes. Bonjour at the cjn.ca. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. 
As we record this Thursday morning, uh, Russian forces are in Ukraine in what now can undoubtedly be called an invasion and likely a full-on war. Russian President Vladimir Putin has justified this using a variety of rhetoric, including the denazification of Ukraine and supposed disputed territories. World leaders have condemned this move, but only time will tell how this will unfold. I know that this is uh, quite the Ashkenormative statement, but it seems like the Jewish community is more involved in this global conflict because so many Jews have ancestry from the region. This, of course, in addition to the rise of the Russian-speaking Jewish community in Israel and the rest of the diaspora, means that there are many Jews in our communities that have some firsthand connection to the region. And so here to help us untangle what this all means for the world, as well as for Jews in Russia, Ukraine, Israel, and the diaspora in general, are two luminaries of the Canadian RSJ community, Ruti Korotayev and Semyon Dovshik. Ruti is a writer, researcher, and graduate student at the Center for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Toronto Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy with a specialty in Russian media. And Semyon is a freelance journalist and formerly was a spokesperson for the Jewish Agency and the emissary of the Jewish Agency in Moscow. Ruti and Semyon, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. So for those of us who weren't paying attention to the geopolitics in the region before last week, uh, can we start with a brief overview of how we got to this point? Right. So it will, it will be, first of all, I must uh, admit that it's really hard for me to speak this morning. Uh, my heart is with uh, many of my friends that are currently in Ukraine in different places. I'm so used to uh, contact my friends in Israel whenever uh, there is an attack uh, by missiles from Gaza on Israel, but this is the first time that actually I'm very worried about people that live in the former Soviet uh, Union country. So it's been a ver- it's been a long going conflict between uh, Russia and Ukraine, as it seems, but it's actually a conflict between Russia and uh, and the West. And Russia is trying to establish a new geopolitical order in Europe and in the world. And Ukraine is only a battlefield. It's not about Ukraine. It's about Russia's view of the world. It's about the conflict between Russia and the West, between Russia and NATO. And I'm afraid to say that Ukraine may be only the first step of this conflict. Um, yeah, I'll also just jump in here. Um, I was also up until the early hours of the morning. It's a really, really horrible situation that's going on. Um, and... I mean, there are so many kind of events that kind of led up to this sort of situation. But, you know, since 2014, since Putin annexed Crimea, um, these regions have been slowly been building up and creating this sort of separatist region in which there are so many people who are really pushing for this sort of annexation of Ukraine. Um, I and it's it's really hard to say where this will lead. Um, I think it has so many implications and a lot of it has to do with like Putin's own issues as a person. Um, he seems to be wanting to hold on to control. He's been in power since for since 2000, since the year 2000. Um, and he really, he's really pushing this sort of narrative before it was really about NATO aggression and like not wanting Ukraine to join NATO, which is a ridiculous statement because Ukraine is roughly 30 years away from joining NATO. Um, and now it's it's really sort of turning into a narrative to focus on Ukraine aggression, Ukraine Nazification, Ukrainian um, 
fascism and it's it's just becoming it's it's just also ridiculous because Zelensky is openly Jewish his he's in his speech last night he said he um his grandfather fought in this in the great patriotic war and eight million Ukrainians died fighting the Nazis so it just all around um is this really bizarre narrative that I don't understand how people are buying into in the region and it's just kind of sort of Russia's latest step in kind of maintaining its hegemony in the region um, and sort of almost this nostalgic view and rebuilding the Soviet Union into this kind of great um, country of what they believe to be a great country. Now, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned that Putin was calling to denazify the Ukrainian government. You mentioned that the president of Ukraine is Jewish himself. I'm curious if 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 that had any kind of decision, if Putin had any type of um, does that play into any of the reactions or decisions made in terms to advance this type of invasion going on? Again, as I mentioned, I don't believe it's about Ukraine. If you listen carefully to what Putin uh, says or, or what uh, are Russians, Russia's demands, they do not want uh, Ukraine to join NATO, but more than that, they want NATO out of their um, Eastern European countries like uh, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, they want American troops out of uh, countries like Poland and Romania. So again, it's, it's, you know, it's happening in Ukraine, but it's not about Ukraine. Ukraine is not a major player in this situation. They are victim of this geopolitical struggle that Putin just started. So can you tell us a bit about how that affects the Jews in Ukraine specifically? How are how are they coping with it over there? And what does that mean for the future? Uh, well, I think the future is quite uh, gloom for the Ukrainian Jews right now, it seems. Maybe a bit overview of, of the Jewish community in Ukraine. The official estimation that uh, there are about 42,000 uh, Ukrainian Jews living there. No one knows exactly how many. And uh, if you count Jews by the law of return, which is a broader uh, definition, we can speak about 200,000 people that can that are eligible for the Israeli citizenship. It's a very, very old, very developed, but also very complex Jewish community. Just, uh, for example, Ukraine has three chief uh, rabbis. There are many different Jewish organizations that, uh, as usual, they fight each other more than anything else. There are many powerful Jewish oligarchs deeply involved in Ukrainian politics. There are Jewish politicians, there are Jewish members of the Rada, the Ukrainian parliament, there are prominent Jewish journalists, artists, business, business people. And uh, if all this is not enough, there is a Jewish president in Ukraine. So it's, it's a really interesting community. I must speak a few words about the Jewish communities uh, in the eastern Ukraine that I happen to know very well. Uh, before 2014, when the actually when the war started, places cities like Donetsk and Luhansk, they both of the cities they had significant Jewish populations. Uh, with a, again with a very developed uh, Jewish commu- Jewish community, with the representation of many international Jewish organizations like Jewish Agency, JDC, uh, Hillel, and many others. And uh, when the war started, uh, when these places were taken by the by the pro-Russian militants, these people. Uh, 
most of these people were displaced. Some of them uh, left everything behind and they moved uh, to places like Kiev, Lviv, and other cities in uh, in Ukraine. Others immigrated to Israel. If I'm not mistaken, about 10% of the Jewish commu- Ukrainian Jewish community left the country in two, uh, after the war in uh, 2014. So it's a huge Jewish immigration that we are witnessing right now. And uh, by the by the example of Donetsk, we can see what is going to happen to other places in Ukraine if Russians are going to occupy uh, other places in Ukraine. Because... Uh, from the 15,000 Jews that they used to live in Donetsk, only maybe 3,000 left. Most of them are elderly people. They have neither the money or the energy to live. All they want is to stay in their own homes. They, whatever the consequences are, they are just hopeless. I happen to know many young people that were very deeply involved in the Jewish life in these places. They all live either in Kiev or in Israel right now. So nothing really hopeful right now for the Jews in in, in Ukraine. So forgive me if this is a, a silly question. Um, for, Jews in the region have been... Um, you know, dealing with changing borders for literally centuries. And it seems to me, at least, and again, this may be a very naive question, that neither of the countries are particularly hostile to Jews in either country. Um, And nobody wants to be in a war region at all, of course. Um, But at the end of the day, um, how does this affect Jews in the region on either side if it just means like, oh, okay, I guess we're living in Russia now and not in Ukraine? I I mean, yeah, They've lived with shifting uh, borders, but at the same time, as Zelensky said in his speech, people are still connected to the land. I'm a Russian Jew. My family's from Moscow. Donbass, this, these places don't really, I don't visualize them. I don't know what they mean, but if from, from, I, have a, I have a lot of friends from Ukraine who are Ukrainian Jews, and they are very deeply tied to cities like Odessa, like Kiev, like Mariupol. And I think it means something for them to be part of Ukraine. Um, And it's not just kind of shifting borders, but as much as it is um, kind of a national identity. So then, Ruti, if I can come in here, and I'm just curious, what what are the relationships like between Ukrainian and Russian Jews today? In terms of the people, do they have a common... um, a common relationship. What will what will happen to these two very different Jewish communities on both sides of the conflict moving forward? That's a good question. I don't know if I can really speak to that because I'm not super familiar with these communities, but I do know that um, they do, especially the older generations, they have the Soviet Union in common. Um, they have this sort of Soviet legacy, and with that comes a lot of unpleasant memories, like institutionalized anti-Semitism, but there's also kind of nostalgic elements as well um, in terms of Soviet culture and television. We can expect uh, uh, hostile acts toward Jewish communities when the Russians take over, especially in the places like Uman, 
where historically where there were tensions between the local Ukrainian community and the Hasidic community that came to live in Uman and other places, Odessa and Mariupol. For those of you who don't know, Uman is, uh, it was, it's called often the Jewish Burning Man, right? Where once a year people go visit the grave of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov on uh, Rosh Hashanah, and uh, it becomes this massive uh, Hasidic festival of uh, tens of thousands of Jews coming down on in Uman. And I imagine that if this conflict happens, it's going to be seriously curtailed in the coming year and in coming years beyond that. Yes, but beyond the Rosh Hashanah, there are currently more than uh, 10,000 Hasidic Jews that uh, permanently live in Uman. So it's wow, a huge okay. Hasidic community with uh, with constant tensions uh, with the local authorities and local communities over properties, real estate, businesses, uh, workshop places, and so on and so far. So I'm very worried about their uh, safety. I don't think that uh, Russian fighters or any uh, Russian proxies will be especially friendly towards uh, Jewish places or towards the Jewish communities. So again, it's a physical and very, very real danger. And uh, many of the people will try to, to escape, whoever is capable. As again, people who are not uh, wealthy, who don't have any means or... Elderly people won't be able to live. No one knows what's going to happen, but nothing good is anticipated. So, um, Ruti, I have a I have a follow up that's related to to media as well. But then I eventually want both to hear both of you about this um, about this issue. I, I've been speaking over the past couple of days uh, to a lot of the colleagues that I have and friends that I have that are within the RSJ community um, in Montreal and elsewhere. Um, and I'm asking them, like, you know, what is the sentiment? And they're telling me this that like. Many of the Russian Jews here um, are very much pro-Russia. They're on the Russian side. They have been listening to uh, state propaganda and have been convinced by it. And basically any Russian Jew that you meet who votes for Trump or who says that Trump was right is basically on the side of Putin and saying that this is right and this is proper. This also this idea that I keep hearing, and I can't imagine that it's true because of what you guys are saying, that Russian Jews have very little allegiance to Ukraine itself as a nation. Um, I had somebody tell me that even Ukrainian Jews in Canada tend to align themselves more with Russia than with the Ukra- with than with Ukraine. Um, how does this play out in Canada? Is this actually where, what we're seeing? Um, and is this a case where there are actually an, a strong undercurrent of Ukrainian Jews, but they're not um, being represented because the Russian community is so uh, dominant in this way? Um, that is all insanity. I'm so sorry. Okay. Um, okay, that's that that's why we have you experts on because I'm I'm hearing this from people and I'm like that can't possibly be true. No, okay. So, I mean, I have so many points about this um and I've my mind is racing, but I guess so let me just zoom out and say that yes, after the war, Russian identity and Soviet identity in many ways kind of merged because um you know, Stalin was really pushing for this sort of, um, you know, homogenization of Soviet identity and to kind of squander uh, nationalist movements, including Jewish nationalist movements. Um, um, but we, and of course, a lot of Jews who come from the FSU, the Russian speaking, but they don't necessarily align themselves with Russia and with Russian, the current Russian Federation. Um, and And I guess sort of, to, to, to answer your question, like, yeah, media plays 
an enormous role, and, and it's not lost on Zelensky or any of the leaders themselves, because he, he mentioned this in his speech last night. He knows that his his speech wasn't going to be broadcast on um, Russian news agencies, and I think it was only shown on, like, RIA Novosti, which is, like, a, a Russian state-sponsored news wire. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, it's just... It's it's such a huge propaganda machine, and it's... And, you know... But it's, I don't know, it's hard to kind of gauge the impact that it has on an opinion building. And that's very much where my research lies, like the ways in which the Russian speaking community, not just Jewish, but like any kind of ethnic backgrounds from the FSU, how they relate to the Soviet Union via the media and how via state sponsored media. So I think like a lot of the Russian speaking Jews in this community, they left Russia for a reason. And that reason being that they don't like Russia. But at the same time, um, people do consume a lot of Russian state-sponsored media here, and it does have an impact on their political beliefs, um, including this kind of affiliation with the right, right-wing leaders like Trump and Boris Johnson. And, and yeah, I just think that's an important point to note. And why do you think there is that distinction of supporting right-wing leaders um, uh, in North America, but not over there. I mean, that's the overlying question of my research is why I'm, that's why I'm trying to understand. And at the same time, there's also this whole other layer of conspiracy theories. And so many of these are, are people who are Jewish, but they believe in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories as well that Jews you know, control the world. And I've heard this from Jews themselves. What I'm curious is, um, do can any of you speak to how Israel is playing a role right now? I think from, you know, everything I've been reading, they were really trying to find a balancing act between uh, not taking one side or the other. And I think the Ukrainian government was a bit upset with them for not standing up more to Russia, but they're sort of in an unenviable position where they don't want to upset the Russian Federation, but they also don't want to upset Ukrainians' government. Can any of you speak to what the Jewish uh, Russian community and what the Israeli government is trying to sort of achieve here? Well, Israel, Israel's situation couldn't be more complicated here. As the foreign minister Yarapid Lapid mentioned, Israel has a border with Russia, and he obviously meant Syria, with a huge amount of Russian forces there. So Israel is really trying to keep the balance, not ruin their relationship with Russia. That, to be honest with you, you can you, you can say whatever you want to say about the former Prime Minister Netanyahu. But uh, in relation to uh, keeping uh, this relationship with, uh, with Russia safe and balanced, he, he did a very pretty good job. It's really important to Israel to keep doing whatever they're doing in Syria without Russian interference. And so far, Russia did not get involved. But uh, recently, in the recent weeks, weeks, we can hear different voices. Russia is becoming more vocal about uh, Israel's airstrikes in uh, Syria. Uh, we hear different uh, Russia's spokespeople condemning Israel. Uh, and I think, uh, in according to this Israel's position uh, about the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, became uh, more clear. And uh, as you know, Israel condemned uh, Russia's, Russia's aggression uh, towards Ukraine. Or the ad- on the other hand, uh, you know, Ukraine has a huge uh, Jewish community. Uh, Israel has uh, some interest in Ukraine. 
uh, I think, um, you know, it, in terms of um, export, uh, Israel is dependent on Ukraine. Uh, there are some Israeli uh, companies that outsource their uh, workspace to Ukraine. So, yes, Israel is a very, very delicate place in this conflict. But I think in the end, Israel will have to make its its statements because, you know, it's not uh, left with uh, right. It's now insanity with normality. So uh, I think what's, what's interesting, and other critics and other um, pundits have said this, that uh, what is remarkable about the point in time that we are is that there's a war breaking out in this region, and yet there is still a place where Jews can escape towards, um, which is Israel, which wasn't happening 100 years ago or 200 years ago or any innumerable number of conflicts in the region in the previous centuries. So that's remarkable. Um, what I uh, want to wrap up with one last question, though, in terms of thinking, there's no way of really knowing what the future will hold for this conflict, and this could either be something very quick or very long and protracted. I don't want to opine on that. Um, but what I am I'm curious is, um, you know, even given what you just said, Ruti, that, you know, the vast, you know, support for Putin in the Russian Jewish community in the diaspora is, you know, completely overblown. Um, there must be some Jews, right, that are, um, you know, supporting this invasion um, because of the propaganda that they hear or for whatever reason. Um, what do you think the future of relationships within the RSJ community and the diaspora is going to be like um, if you have people on both sides of this conflict um, within the Jewish community supporting this and, um, you know, to sort of say what you think, where things might be going um, from both of your sides. Well, from my perspective, my parents have lost a lot of friends um, since 2014. And since the war kind of started and, and this, this annexation happened, like, it's just been constant arguments within all, with all of their friends. Um, and so I think that might be a mar- microcosm as to where things are going because it is a very divisive issue. But yeah, I mean, I don't want to speak for the whole community um, because it's such a, it's not a homogenous community. Everyone had had very different experiences in the Soviet Union. Some people experienced no anti-Semitism. Some people um, had a great time and some people, um, you know, hate Soviet Union so much that they refuse to speak Russian. Um, and so I just think it's it's really hard to say where this will lead um, within the diaspora. I believe that uh, Russian Jews who supports uh, Putin and supports Russian aggression uh, against Ukraine, uh, it's a fringe min- uh, it's fringe minority. I love this expression now. So, I, I, but I do believe it's a fringe minority. A huge majority of the community came to Canada a long time ago. They raised their kids here. They uh, adopted some more uh, Western um, Western um, opinion and Western uh, orientation uh, in relates to Russia. I don't like this generalization that whoever supports Trump, that these this people automatically supports Putin, so on and so far. It's not true. It's incorrect. Uh, I don't see any... Any huge fights within the commu- Russian Jewish community uh, about the situation. Whatever you have mentioned, I think it relates to the broader Russian-speaking community living in Canada. 
there I do hear some pro-Putin voices, but in whatever in relates to the Russian Jews, I think we're more or less on the same side. Ruti, Semyon, thank you so much for joining us. Um, as the situation develops and unfolds, I'm sure we'll hopefully have a chance to hear uh, more about this from you. Uh, and we value your opinions and your voices. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. You can find uh, links to Ruti and Semyon's Twitter accounts and writing in the show notes. And you can email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to let us know what you thought. So, you know, I decided instead of always farming it out to other rabbis or other high school students, which has been great, we love this, I was wondering if, like, every once in a while, we can just have a discussion about the Torah portion of the week. Um, and before I get into that, like, I was just curious, what's your general relationship to, you know, getting into the Torah portion? Is it when you're in services? Do you happen to, like, during the week, get a newsletter that has, a like, a piece of Torah in there or something? I mean, I I try to go to show every week or every other week because the service that I go to is bi-weekly. Um, and I try my best as we're reading through it to look at the translation and really pay attention to the words that I'm saying in Hebrew to remind myself what is going on because I feel like after I graduated high school, I honestly didn't really think so much about it until I started going to shul again just in the past few months, really, on a more regular basis. Um, and I, I have to say that it's very helpful how at the end of every episode of Bonjour Chai, Avi, you name the Parsha because every week at show, I'm like, I know what it is this week. I can go straight to the page before they announce it. So that's fun. <laughs> I was just going to say, unless Avi tells me I have no idea what the Parsha of the week is, I feel like I'm the bad Jew here oh, on Bonjour Chai. There are no I, bad Jews. We, this, we, this doesn't exist. Well, I take it as a badge of, of pride, maybe, itself. It's like, I don't know what the Parsha of the week is as weeks go by until my rabbi or I'll get a newsletter or Avi will just remind mm -hmm. me. I feel like a, a newsletter is a cool idea. Do you know anything like that that gives out like a summary so of every So very week? many. <laughs> there are like dozens sure so many, and like, dozens One that you think is compelling and interesting. Um, one that is, I mean, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has a, even though he passed away, he had written out many years of his covenant and conversations that they're <laughs> like, still putting them releasing? out on a regular basis. They, I find him okay. to be very um, erudite and very concise about the mm -hmm. Torah portion. Um, but I can assure you that whatever yeah. rabbinical um, figure or rabbi or um, denominational movement that you're into will have like a weekly, you know, Dvar Torah email or some kind um, that they send out and they mm -hmm. push out um, and that is worth checking out. So, so, yeah. Um, so, like, this week's Torah portion, actually, is a really good slash very bad one to start with because, on its face, it's an extremely boring Torah portion, right? Parshat Vayakel, 95% of the Torah portion is a list of the things that the that they did to construct the uh, tabernacle in the desert, mm -hmm. right? And it's just a list of stuff. Right. The way that I always say that if Parshat Truman Titzaveh, which are, um, you know, three and four weeks ago, um, sorry, the the... The, the, the end of the second half of Exodus, to go and, and to be careful, we have Teruma Titzaveh Kel Pekudeh. Those are each one of those is a different Torah portion. And Teruma Titzaveh discuss the plans and the ideas for how one should make a tabernacle and how one should make the garments for the high priests and the priests in general. Then we have this break of a week mm -hmm. where the, um, the whole story of the sin of the golden calf shows up. And then you have Vayakel and Pekudeh yep, where week. they actually do the construction 
of the tabernacle and the and the garments and all this stuff. So if God is not smiting and smoting people, which is the exciting parts, he's really just laying out a blueprint for like a construction company going on. So so it's exactly what I was going to say was that if Truman Titzaveh is the architect plans, right? Vayakel and Pikude is the developer, right? It's the contractor. And the, yeah, this is my contract. I did this. I did this. I did this. This was done. That was done. That was done. So it's kind of like the flip side of like the plan. It's the actualization. And so that's what happens in this week's portion. And it's just a list of all the things that were done. You had a question on yeah. I have a question that actually came up in show last week. What's with the angels? Because like to me, when you when you think of like angel statues, it seems very Christian. And we have those two cherubim that are on top of the ark. Where does that come from? Like I know we have angels in Jewish liturgy as well, but like the actual creation of them, I was looking at, at the uh, interpretation at the bottom of the Tanakh, but I, w- I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, it's not related to this week's portion, but we can take a detour. That's okay. Oh. The Torah is all related oh, wow. to everything. Um, you know, one of the interesting ways that you can think about it is that in the Torah, the, the Hebrew word for angel is, mal- is a malach, right, or malachim. Mm-hmm. And when it comes, yeah. one of the early moments where we see uh, angels appear is um, with Abraham when he gets the news, right, that he is going to have a child and these three messengers come, three malachim come mm-hmm. and they um, speak to him. And you know, the commentators will go and say that, you know, some people will say these are actual angels and other people will say, no, these are just messengers. And the idea that an angel is basically just an emissary or a messenger of God, right, is an interesting way to approach thinking about what does it mean, uh, an angel. So mystical Judaism will go and say that angels are real and they're kind of entities and they're beings, but they don't have physical bodies. And this, these are their properties and, you know, whatnot. And rational um, Judaism will go and try to explain what it means that a messenger of God uh, Right. It's not necessarily an angel, but it could be just a human who is being sent by God, being compelled by God in some, you know, force or some natural way to go and tell this person something. Um, and they become an, an emissary of God in some way and that there's a little more of a naturalistic approach to that. So I don't want to get into the whole, you know, are there really angels? Are there not? Is it mysticism? Because I, I tend to be like a very rational yeah you know, Jew and and people get on me because I'm not mystical enough. Um, But like, that's really just to get broadly speaking, the both sides of that is like, you know, that's there. But then how do we get to the statues of the angels? Because like, you're not, you're not supposed to have statues that you pray to. And I know we don't pray to the cherubim that are on top, but like, how... Like, how is Again, that a thing that was like, we don't actually know what those things okay. look like. We have Midrashim that tell us that they looked like, you know, X. Um, but but okay. to know what that actually meant and represented and what it was there for, um, you know, is, you know, why don't you ask me when we get to Parsha Truma, when we get to it next year, and okay. I can have 48 plus weeks to plan and prepare for it. Right. Um, no, but like, a better question for this <laughs> you have a year to think um, about it, Alana. It's, what, it's, what would have been a better question for this week's Parsha? I mean, why do we need right these lists right i I always point out why do we need these lists um i don't know i i'm I'm really not sure always and i think that these are like some of the hardest torah portions to give sermons with or to like give divrei torah about um words of wisdom and whatever because at the end of the day you know they said it that it should be done and it was done and that was it right and the vast majority of what's going on in the story itself is fine. But you know what? Um, There are multiple ways to approach it. One, I think, is that details always matter. 
Um, and um, this is something that was pointed out to me. There's a wonderful book called, uh, it's it's a book about lists um, and it's by Umberto Eco. I don't remember the exact title of it, but he talks about how lists show up in literature and in art and lists are an important feature of art, whether you're aware of it or not. Um, and that sometimes listing things in excruciating detail are important um, because of the, the fact that it's not just, you know, let's yeah, find somebody will take care of it, right? The details matter. And as mm-hmm. people who put together podcasts, we know that sometimes details matter um, and getting something right and getting the sound right and getting the recording right and making sure that everything is perfect so that we have a professional thing makes, you know, is important. And if you were going to teach somebody how to record a podcast, you would probably want to go and give them lists and show them that these things matter. Um, so so in that sense, I think that given as a whole, lists and especially this week's list is has value. Um, so are lists a, a Jewish a Jewish thing. I love lists. I definitely get that from my mom's side of the family. Like I, every single day I have like a list that mm-hmm. I check off of, of like all the work that I have to get done. And I know some people that don't like that and they feel like they're being micromanaged when they write lists for themselves. But that's how I get through. Like a shopping you know? list. Yeah. yeah. No, but not just shopping lists. Like literally like these are all the things I need to call this person. I need to do this thing. Like some people just keep it in their heads. I can't do that. Is that a Jewish thing? Um, I, I would even go so far as to say that you know, the Mishnah is essentially a whole set of lists. And it's the first time that you have um, all of these laws, right, which are written up in the first and second century, um, having lists of things of, of, of halachot, of laws, and they're categorized, and they're meant to be memorizable and easily understandable because they're in lists, is part of the process of rabbinic literature. And then you have these discussions about what these lists mean and how they interpret it and what this piece and that piece. But if you look at Mishnah straight up, it's often just sees, seen as a list of different laws. So lists are valuable, especially in a society where you have to remember a lot of different things. Um, so is it particularly Jewish? I don't know if it, it's particularly Jewish. Is it, is it uniquely Jewish? I don't know about that. But there's definitely that idea there. And it's this week's portion is is very indicative of that idea and the value of listing things out in general, in particular, and not just in general. Um, I like to focus very much on the word. And, and, you know, and this to me is the hook of the whole Torah portion um, of Vayakhel, which literally means, right, and the, and the, the phrase itself, I'll, I'll read the whole first verse. Vayakhel Moshe et kol adat b'nei Yisrael, vayomer alehem, ele hadvarim asher tzivad Right. Moses then convened the whole Israelite community and said to them, these are the things that God has commanded you to do. Um, and if you look at it in the um, scheme of things, the way that I, I explained it before, right, where you have the planning of the tabernacle, of the Mishkan, and then you have this moment where they sin with the golden calf, and then you have the actual construction or the details of how it was ended up being constructed, um, we have this moment in the middle where the golden calf happens and you can think this as being catastrophic and being totally like shattering for the community. And yet what does Moshe do when this is done and they have repented and they're all back together, right? Vayakel. And Moses made them back into a kehila, right? The word in Hebrew, Vayakel, the root of it is, is kufhe lamed, which is the mm, same idea for kehila for a community. And Moses mm-hmm. re-communed them, made them into this community again, and reminded them that you are still a community and you are still all together as one, even though you might think that you are fractured and all you know separate. And so it's this idea that we may have different opinions. We may be doing things differently and we may sin. We may be, some of us um, may have had bad things, right? David believes in bad Jews. You know, other people say, oh, there's no such thing as a bad Jew, right? But whatever your opinion is to remember that we are all together, 
that we are being made into a community, there is some value to that. And I think that that's, to me, one of the big messages. So if anything, I have learned that there is no such thing as a boring Parsha, just a boring interpretation. Yep. What does uh, Homer Simpson say? There are no no stupid questions, only stupid people. On that note. Um, Isn't that a, yeah, on that note. So, you know, be together, come together. And that to me is one of the wonderful messages of this week's Torah portion. And now we're at the point in our show where we get to our nachas. What's been newish, Jewish, and Canadianish um, on your radars this week? Alana, what's your nachas of the week? So last night I had the opportunity to attend this event at Beth Emmet Beis Yehuda Synagogue in North York. That was honoring the heroes of Kosovo and Albania who helped rescue many, many Jews after the Holocaust and during. Um, so there was a photography exhibit and uh, special guests. There was even uh, the Consul General of the Republic of Kosovo. We had the MP. We had a whole bunch of people. The Consul General of Israel was there, and everyone spoke. Um, and the, the exhibit itself was quite moving. These are people who were named Righteous Among the Nations, and the photographer took pictures of them now and had quotes from them on the side of what their experience was like. So as part of their code of honor... They have a quote, Albanian household belongs to God and the guest. So anyone that comes in is not a stranger, but a guest. Um, and it, it was really moving um, to see how these people had strangers coming into their homes. They dressed some Jews up as farmers so that people wouldn't come by. There was one uh, person who was a doctor and he dressed up one of these Jews that he was hiding in like medical garb. Like he like put like a bandage around him and all this stuff. And he just was like a patient in the hospital, but he wasn't actually a patient. That was just their way of hiding him. So it was pretty, pretty, pretty incredible stuff. Nice. David, what's your nachos? He's not Canadian, but I just feel if you want to unwind and relax and have just a chuckle or two, there is Philip Rosenthal, who is who was basically a creator and writer and executive producer of Everybody Loves Raymond. I know I'm late to the game here, but he does have a show that I've been watching a lot lately on Netflix called Somebody Feed Phil. He is so adorable. He is incredibly Jewish. At the end of every episode, he gets on to Zoom, I think, and chats with his two parents who are... They just remind me of my parents every time they, I have a phone call conversation with them. They're, they're, they're arguing with each other. It is very Jewish and very enjoyable. If you want to put a smile on your face, I highly recommend Somebody Feed Phil. I got to go check that out. Um, and it's not Jewface because he's Rosenthal. Very. Um, my nachos is that I, uh, I borrowed uh, for the past little while uh, a friend's uh, Crave uh, password. And, uh, borrowed, tell on me. quote unquote. Exactly, quote unquote borrowed. You're never and giving I've been it back. Binging a lot of stuff, and um, it initially actually started because of what I'm about to knock us about because I wanted to see it, and it was nowhere else to see this, um, but on Crave. Um, this music box listening to Kenny G documentary by Kenny by Penny Lane, um, and it's uh, an hour and a half ish documentary about. Um, Kenny G and his life currently and how he became this like instrumental superstar and the the music critics that aren't into his music at all and the millions of fans that are and an exploration into you know whether he cares or not and how he doesn't care and how his fans just love his music and he is 
um, just putting up music that people like and he just wants to make people happy and he comes off as this like ah, you know, I just love people and I love music and I just want to make people feel good and this is it. And whether you like his music or not, and I got to admit that when I was a teen and I was only listening to like instrumental sort of like pop music because I wasn't into rock because I was in a yeshiva, Kenny G was like part of the landscape and I would listen to it and I owned a few albums and now I realize having listened to like, I don't know, John Coltrane and Miles Davis and listening to like really uh, harder, um, difficult um, to get into and difficult to understand um, music that is often perceived as art um, that he is doing something that is kind of a little backgroundy and nice and sweet for people um, but you know his thing is like what are you judging people love my music and that's it and there's something to be said about Kenny G um, who was born Kenny Gorelick and that's the Jewish connection of this good Jewish boy from Seattle I didn't who, know that um, yeah had a bar mitzvah and all of that and talks about it on the show and i'm like yeah that's the attitude that we should have you don't like what i'm putting out well many many people like what i'm putting out and that's all that matters because i'm doing something for my fans and i'm doing something beautiful to make them feel good in their day um and that's a wonderful attitude even if i don't necessarily like his music <laughs> that's Anymore. how you wrap it up <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Like, I get it. Reveal. I wouldn't actively listen to his music anymore. Like, it's I get it. I, it's not my thing. But right. the Maybe attitude that yours. he had towards life was just so wonderful. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of February 25th, Shabbat Parashat Vayakhel. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. Are you uh, sure you know where the impound yard is? Oh, stop stalling. Come on. I, I can't think. It's all this noise. Or is it because I've built a stronghold around Greenland? I've driven you out of Western Europe? And I've left you teetering on the brink of complete annihilation. I'm not beaten yet. I still have armies in the Ukraine. (laughs) The Ukraine. You know what the Ukraine is? It's a sitting duck. A road apple, Newman. The Ukraine is weak. It's feeble. I think it's time to put the hurt on the Ukraine. I come from Ukraine. You not say Ukraine weak. Yeah, well, we're playing a game here, pal. Ukraine is game to you. How about I take your little bonus? Ah!